If you would please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 66. Psalm 66. Now, this morning you may have noticed a theme on praise, and that's what this particular psalm is about. Uh, The scripture reading this morning from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8, uh, we get an inside look into uh, basically the heavenly throne room uh, where God sits on a throne. So Isaiah is transported uh, into the throne room of God, and there he is elevated on this throne, and it says that his glory had filled the temple. All right, Uh, just to kind of give a glimpse as to what he saw. He saw and he heard the seraphim, uh, those angelic beings in their power who had to cover their eyes and their feet before God, um, and declared his holiness three times. All right, so what is Isaiah's response? Well, he's overcome when he sees this and he hears this. And it's interesting, the, uh, the prophet who has already pronounced eight woes against the wicked in Isaiah, you know, basically, woe on you for the destruction that's about to come, now says, woe is me. Um, because he recognizes in the glory of God his own uncleanness, his own frailty, his weakness. And he says, woe is me for I am undone. Literally saying, I'm cut off. You know, there's no hope for me. Um, but, and he declares the uncleanness of his own mouth, and it takes an act of God to purify his lips, right? And so that, that sign of the angel bringing that coal from the altar and making his lips clean um, in the presence of God. So where, where does true worship come from? True worship really comes only from a proper estimation of both self and of God. Uh, and so that, that was something that Isaiah was given a glimpse of, and we are as well. And I think that it's important for us as believers, it's, it's easy for us to become kind of comfortable and forget God in all of his holiness. Yes, we have access to this God through Jesus Christ, but his character and his nature is the same. This, we are talking to and lifting, elevating our praises and lifting our prayers to the same holy God that Isaiah saw high and lifted up that thrice holy God. So the thing is, true. Like as, as I mentioned, true worship comes only from a proper estimation of both self and of God, but man really can't come to a full estimation of God apart from revelation. Right? And I think that's part of the reason why Isaiah was given this glimpse. You know, here you are preaching my message, I'm going to show you who I am. Uh, and it gives even more poignancy to his preaching, right? Because he's going to give him a, a, a message and a mission to declare uh, the truths of God to people who won't listen. Right? You would think that would be discouraging, but God's saying, no, 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 I have commissioned you to do this work. Right? And they're not going to listen to you, but you're going to preach it anyway. And there would be then the judgment of God that would follow on the people who refused uh, to listen. So we know that God's going to have to reveal himself, and he's done that right through both his works and his word. This is how God has revealed himself. So the psalmist here is going to call all of mankind to observe what God has revealed about himself, and then that should move us to a right response uh, in praise for both his works and uh, for his person. The psalm is made up, it's divided up into two sections. Uh, The first section would have two hymns, and then the last section is more of a psalm. Um, 
but this is this psalm moves. So there's just three. Uh, I'm going to give you three points here. So you've got the call to universal praise. There's a call to community praise, and then it ends with an individual praise. All right. And the the point is going to be if you and I would worship God, we're going to need to observe the works that He's done. If we want to give Him the worship that He deserves, we need to look at the works that He's done. So let's read Psalm 66. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say unto God, How terrible art thou in thy works! Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in His doing toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in Him. He ruleth by His power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of His praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life and suffereth not our feet to be removed. For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou, hast, thou broughtest us into the net, thou laidst our affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee with my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble." I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture passage, Lord, this truth, this call to praise. Uh, Lord, help us to observe the works that you have done and be moved uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, as we consider not only the works you have done uh, in the past, in the world, and in Israel, but what you've done for us individually. Lord, may we be moved to acceptable praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point there, a call to universal praise. This is what we see in verses 1 through 7. Universal praise. uh, Where he says, Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say unto God, How terrible or awesome uh, art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. So he starts out with a command. The psalmist here commands all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. You need to not just sing praise, but shout for joy to God. So the psalmist is giving a command that all people would shout with joy. All right? And there are a lot of words and phrases that indicate this is about praise. All right? Just in these two verses that I've read to you, uh, make a joyful noise, right? shout with joy is what that means, sing forth the honor of his name, Make his praises glorious, right? So this giving glory through glorious praise. Say unto God, right? Speaking to God about his nature, his character. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. 
Right? And what is the purpose for all this or the reason for this? The cause for this universal praise is the revelation of God's honor or His glory. That's just another word for glory there. Okay? So when we consider the glory of God, and, and the psalmist is saying all the earth needs to pay attention, look at God and His glory, and it ought to result in praise. And that's everyone. Everyone. Not just Israel, not just the church, but all of the world should be uh, praising and elevating God. We all owe praise to God. So that was just the first, uh, first couple of verses, or first four verses there in that call to universal praise. But in verses 5 through 7, uh, we see some elements of that praise. And where, where, why are we giving praise to God? Well, there are certain characteristics of God that really motivate that. He says, come and see the works of God. So the psalmist is calling our attention to what God has done. When you consider his works throughout all of history, right? And when we think about, as, as the church, his redemptive work from beginning to end, it should move us to praise. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doings toward the children of men. What did he do? Well, he turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. He rules by power forever. His eyes behold the nations and don't let the rebellious exalt themselves. So the first thing he draws our attention to is universal praise for God's sovereign power. Uh, The reality is that he is the king of all, right? He rules over all, and that is demonstrated in what he has done. So God's glory is evident when we observe the use of his sovereign power power in accomplishing his works. You know, his works are terrible. His works are awesome. They're full of fear when we consider uh, his might and his power. Um, and, and we have evidence of this throughout history. The specific examples of God's power given are in verse 6. Right? So the psalmist refers to the Israelites' crossing of the Red Sea. And we know it's the Red Sea. He talks about them walking through the sea, but then also singing praises. Well, you have that in Exodus 15. Immediately after they walk through the sea, Israel sings this song, right? Uh, elevating God for destroying uh, Pharaoh and his army um, in the sea. Uh, so they sang great praises to God because of that. And what other nation had experienced that kind of power? Well, not just Israel, but Egypt had just experienced that power. And they were uh, destroyed in judgment. All right? It was not in their favor. So in doing these things, God showed his sovereign power in his deliverance of Israel. All right? His deliverance of his chosen people. And his power, he's also showing his power of judgment to his enemies there. Uh, not just Egypt, but also his power over the nations in the promised land. Okay? So universal praise for God's sovereign power, and now we have universal praise for God's sovereign judgment. Uh, and his judgment is closely tied, of course, to his power. He would not be able to pass judgment if he did not have the power to do so. So given the wording and structure of this hymn, or the, the two hymns that are there, um, it could be that in verses 5 through 7, um, this could be part of the praise that the earth should be singing to God about, about his uh, power. Uh, the way it refers to Israel as they, you know, at the sea. Uh, but then the psalmist talks about himself as being part of those people. Um, so it could be a psalm that the earth is to sing. 
So it's either the earth's praise or that of the psalmist directing their thoughts to God's work and judgment. Um, but if, it's, uh, if verses 5 through 7 is the earth's praise to God, what is said should immediately bring to mind really the story of, you think about Rahab, right, and the spies there in the city of Jericho. Um, what happened after you know, the land of Canaan heard about Israel coming across the Red Sea? It said their hearts melted. And then they defeated Sihon and Og, some of the great kings uh, in the land of that time. In Joshua 2, 9 through 11, um, Rahab is talking and telling, look, this is how the people in Can- the land of Canaan feel. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord, use his name, the Lord Uh, Yahweh has dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. So here Rahab is actually praising God by speaking truthfully about him. She recognizes that the judgment of God is coming through Israel. And she can't be the only one. Right? But here is one who actually chooses to submit herself to God and ask for deliverance, and she becomes uh, a part of Israel, her and her family, and actually a part of the Davidic line. So the people of Jericho and all the nations that had heard of God's work against Egypt and the nations uh, between Egypt and the Promised Land recognized the power of God, and they did fear his judgment. Now, it's interesting, the response of the enemies in Psalm 66, uh, this idea of to submit themselves means literally to cringe. If you have a newer translation, it says to cringe. Okay? And uh, this word means that basically they feign obedience. These are people who are so afraid of the power that they will submit to it, at least on the outside, externally, but not internally. Um, So they were fearful, they'd feign obedience, but this is not a heartfelt response. Okay. Uh, So God's enemies should still fear, and there are several reasons why in these verses here. He rules by His power forever. First of all, there's no end to his authority. You know, the kings of the land of Canaan came and went. The kings of Israel would come and go. Um, but God is on his throne forever. His power never ends. His authority never ends. And in addition, his eyes watch the nations. His eyes were on Egypt. His people were there in bondage. Right? He watched over them. He's the one who brought them into Egypt. He's the one that established them and turned them into a nation, really put them in a, in a place where they could prosper and grow as a people, protected. And then he brought them out of their bondage. His eyes were on Egypt, and his eyes were on all the nations of the Promised Land. Okay. Um, we have to understand that you know, when uh, the reason why, or one of the reasons why Israel waited before they were given the Promised Land, God had said the rights was not yet full. God shows 400 years of mercy to these Canaanites uh, who ultimately would still reject the God of heaven. 
All right, so his eyes watch the nations, and the rebellious who attempt to exalt themselves will receive judgment. This is really implied in the context there. Uh, we know that whether willingly or unwillingly, there's going to be a day when every man will worship God. Is that not true? Um, in Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Even those nations that cringe would submit themselves purely out of fear uh, and not from the heart. Every knee will ultimately bow to the king of the universe. Now, we may look at these illustrations, right? Because what are we talking about? We're talking about extending our own praise to God. And we think about these as kind of a, in a disconnected way. Because this is Israel. This was so many... A thousand years ago that this took place. Uh, But what impact do do God's mighty works in Israel have for us today? Well, everything. So God's plan, we need to remember that God's plan while establishing Israel and judging his enemies would ultimately be to reach the world, right? Because God had promised Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And here we are. Right? So we need, to, we need to see that connection because Israel was a part of redemptive, God's redemptive work as much as we are. And it was important that God establish the nation of Israel and give us all of that context about what it meant to enter into the presence of God, what it, you know, how far we are from the holiness and righteousness of God through that sacrificial system, showing our inability to keep the law and other, ever be good enough to enter into the presence of God, to show that there needed to be a righteous sacrifice that could actually enter into the presence of God on our behalf where we could be accepted, where we could stand before Him today and sing our praises to Him and be accepted. So it is not disconnected from us. It is so critical that we understand that what took place in Israel was for our benefit as well, so that we can sing praises, give praise to God. And God's beneficence there to Israel was to be a message to the rest of the world. Okay. Not just for us today, but it was to the people alive in that time. And this is why Rahab responded the way that she did. Right? Now, ultimately, the blessing that was promised to Abraham, or through Abraham to all the nations would only come through Jesus Christ. And the, uh, the psalmist here ends verse 7 with a warning to the rebellious, that they not exalt themselves. And the implication is that the rebels should submit themselves to God or they'll be the recipients of His wrath. If we're children of God, we've accepted Christ, we have submitted ourselves to Him. And we can avoid that wrath. So the world should praise God for His sovereign power and His sovereign judgment. So that's the section really dealing with this Concept of universal praise. Hey, shout for joy. You and the world should shout for joy over God's works. Thank you. All right, so that really moves us then uh, from universal praise to this community praise. We think about more on a national level, okay? But more than just the nation of Israel, I think that he's talking to God's people even within the nation of Israel, okay? Because there were many in Israel who did not serve God. 
right, in the nation itself. He says, O bless our God, ye people, in verse 8, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holds our soul in life and suffereth not our feet to be moved. For thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. So here the psalmist is urging God's people to praise him in a vocal way when they consider what it is he's done for them. So community praise, right? So community praise for God's sovereign preservation, first of all. And I think it's important that he starts with that, right? He talks about God's deliverance. God holds our soul in life. In other words, he preserves us. Literally, who keeps us in life. So no matter what we have faced, no matter what Israel had experienced at the time, it was God who was preserving their life. So he elevates God in this way. God, instead of allowing the trials to overcome his people, he still sustains them. God keeps their foot from slipping and preserves them as they endure these different trials. God delivered Israel, or Isaac and his family, during the time of great famine. Seven years of famine. That's pretty dramatic. And God used Joseph, remember his brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good, to save many people alive. It was for... Um, for Isaac and his children, his family, but it was also for the nations around there. God showing mercy to these people. But God preserved them uh, through that time and would use that to establish them as a people. Uh, But then he would deliver them 400 years later from their bondage. He preserved their lives. He preserved them in the wilderness. All right? There were those who did experience the judgment of God because they'd rebelled during that time. And yet he honored the faithful, didn't he? Okay, Think about those. Who, who was part of that generation that actually escaped the wilderness? The original generation died, but there were some that lived. Who were they? Joshua okay, and Caleb. These were men that were the faithful spies, right? They said, no, God's given us the land. Yeah, there's giants out there, but he's given us the land. So these people, God honors. The rest, though, who had doubted God, uh, did receive his judgment. He he delivered them. And so he would deliver Israel over and over again uh, from bondage and deliver them from their enemies and ultimately bring them in victoriously into the promised land. So community prays for God's sovereign preservation, but then he talks about the trials. All right, we have God's, community prays for God's sovereign trials. Okay, but why the trials or the testings? Well, we have the picture for us that God desired to refine Israel like silver. Not satisfied with the condition they're in, he wants to improve them. So often Israel was judged for sin by being placed in bondage to other nations. Right? You look at the time of Judges was a time of great upheaval, really, in, in the Promised Land. Right? And you just had, uh, sometimes it just seemed like everybody was doing their own thing, uh, not really pursuing after God, and there was, there was judgment. There were people constantly attacking them. And then the times of the kings as well. When they would pursue after God, God would establish them, deliver them from any bondage, 
And then they would fall away again. And God would bring that time of tribulation. Um, So often Israel was judged for sin by being placed in bondage to other nations, but there's no reference to just punishment here, right? The emphasis is on God's, God's sovereign preservation in the midst of the trials. So the end result of those trials was that Israel was brought into a place of abundance. When people experience trial, when the nation of Israel experienced trials, because God wanted to take them from where they were and take them to a better place. Do we understand that in our own lives? I hope that we see that the purpose of trial is to make us more like Christ. That's, we're promised it's not just suffering for the sake of suffering. And this is what gives us hope outside of the world because the world suffers and they don't know what to do with it. A lot of times they can't handle it. They have nowhere to go. But we as God's people, we see suffering as a tool. God says that it's a tool. It is a refining thing, a refining activity. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1, we're going to look at verses 18 through 28. We have a good illustration here of this refining process. It actually uses this illustration about the nation of Israel. Isaiah 1, verse 18 through 28 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And what does he do then? And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So what is God's purpose in that horrible testing? It's refining to make them better, to bring them on the other side that they might experience the blessing of God. God is so much more concerned about where we are and where we're going to be than He is about our current circumstance, right? He cares more about you than He does your circumstance. Do you get that? He allows us to go through trials, but the purpose, it is to be refining, increasing our faith, driving us to Him, driving us to Him in faithfulness, in praise, in service. God has something much bigger in mind, and he was trying to get the nation of Israel to understand that. 
And we have another allusion to this idea of being brought through fire and water. Turn to Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. Again, starting with hope. In Isaiah 43, 1 through 3, Thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You ever felt like you were about to be consumed? We need to look beyond the trial. Yes, we we are there for a reason, right? And God is refining us. But we can trust Him in it. The psalmist said in Psalm 18, 19, He brought me forth also into a large place and delivered me because He delighted in me. After that deliverance, look, God brought me to an even better place. Psalm 23, 4 and 5, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The means of both your guidance and your discipline bring me comfort. And the world doesn't have that. They have a fear of wrath and judgment. But you have care. You have compassion, discipline, because he loves you. They comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When my enemies seem to be succeeding, God still provides. And you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. We're full of blessing. We experience so much, even in the midst of trial. So we need to look, even when we're in the middle of a trial, beyond the trial. So he has called all of the world to shout praise to God. He has called the community of Israel, the nation, hey, to turn to God again for his works, both his sovereign judgment and his sovereign, uh, his sovereign power. But now he turns to this individual praise. So I love how he brings it down and makes it personal, right? Because he's about to talk to us about himself, right? Um, And God has done all these truly awesome things for the world and the people of Israel. But more than that, folks, He's done that for you individually. We need to look, when we read about the nation of Israel, let's bring ourselves into that context because we're a part of that. Right? God hasn't fulfilled all of His promises to the nation of Israel, but what we are experiencing today in the church is all a part of that plan. So be convinced that God is thinking about you. So he's done these things for the world, for the nations, and for, and for Israel and for us as individuals. Our God is deeply personal in his sovereign care. And that should result in our individual praise and worship. So first of all, we have this individual praise through sacrificial worship in verses 13 to 16. He says, I will go into the house, thy house, with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. So the psalmist says, experience deliverance. He's, he's able to say this because he's been through it. 
He's come out on the other side, and he wants to express his thankfulness and his dedication to God for that. And he's going to use these burnt offerings, right? These burnt offerings were sober offerings of commitment to God. And it was common for people that were in duress to make vows to God. Lord, bring me through this, and I will do this for you. Okay. Now, be careful what vows we make, right? There are good vows, and there are some vows that are not wise, so be careful what you say. But here he's making vows to God, and he has every intention of keeping them. So what the psalmist did here in offering these offerings was keeping his vow. Lord, bring me on the other side. I will offer you these sacrifices, these sacrifices of praise. And the command for sacrifices connected to vows was pretty specific. Okay, for Israel, if you want to look in Leviticus chapter 22, verses 18 to 21, uh, Moses writes, Speak unto Aaron and to his sons and unto all the children of Israel, and say unto them, Whatsoever he be of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel, I'm talking about those who came from other nations that became Israelites, that will offer his oblation for all his his vows and for all his freewill offerings, which they will offer unto the Lord for a burnt offering. You shall offer at your own will a male without blemish. Words of the beeves. These are cattle, uh, just so you know. These are bulls, all right, Um, of the sheep or of the goats. But whatsoever hath a blemish, that shall ye not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. And whoever offers a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow, or a freewill offering in beeves, or the herd, or sheep, the flock, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. So you see, what he's saying is, look, I'm, I'm bringing my sacrifices to you. They're going to be acceptable sacrifices as a demonstration of me keeping my vow to you. Okay. So this is how serious he is about his commitment. God has done this for me. Lord, I'm committing to you. I'm going to offer these sacrifices of praise, these sacrifices of commitment because of God's deliverance on a personal level. Trials should naturally increase our faith Trials should result in more dedication to God. What are the results of your trials? Do they draw you to God? Or do you find yourself running the other way? Because that's the alternative. And I wish I could say that every time I was in a trial, I was running to God. Sometimes I run the other direction. But thank God He's gracious enough to bring me back. Right. But if we have the right perspective of God, of who He is in these trials and why He's doing it, and again, He might not explain why, right? He might just demonstrate like He did to Job. He never answered Job's question as to why He was suffering. He just said, no, Job, guess what? This is who I am. And Job's like, I'm going to hush my mouth now. I've said too much. And uh, you can do what you want, but I'm going to serve you. So they should increase our faith and ultimately our dedication to God. So we have this individual praise for God's sovereign care, right? An individual praise through sacrificial worship, first of all. Okay. 
And when we think about the word sacrifice, let's think about service. This is commitment. It costs us something. What is your service costing you? We need to consider everything that God has spent for us. And it should move us to give everything to Him. He already owns it. We just need to recognize it. And it really ought to be the impetus, the motivation for our service. So in addition to this individual praise through sacrificial worship, the psalmist praised God, uh, or he, he has individual praise for God's steadfast love in verses 17 through 20. His steadfast love. Come and hear, verse 16, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, but verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy, this is that chesed, that loyal love, from me. This is a committed love. This is a love that doesn't change because of your unfaithfulness. Plenty of illustrations in life, marriages that didn't last because there wasn't loyal love. But here's a relationship that doesn't change because it's based on God's faithfulness and not mine. And amen to that. Because he'd have left me a long time ago if it was based on my faithfulness. So the psalmist addresses now all God fears. Does that include you? Yes. So the strangers in Israel, the Israelites, but it's us too. Gentiles who have come to Christ. So he's talking to all God fears to proclaim what God has done for him personally. He says, hey, listen, let me tell you what God has done for me. You ever done that? I know you have, because you've shared things that God has done for you in your life with me. And he wants to do the same. This psalmist really wants to exalt God. And he admits that he cried out to God. Uh, But even while crying out for deliverance, he's still praising God. He's still elevating the name of God. That no matter what the trial, hey, I'm trusting God in this. God is good. And you know, this is hard right now, but that's okay, because I'm going to trust God, and He's going to bring me through on the other side. So the psalmist is recognizing, though, the need to approach God in sincerity. Right? To harbor sin in his heart would hinder his communication with God. I think a really good illustration of that is the story of Achan. So here Israel going into the promised land, right? And God said, the land is yours. I will take care of all of your enemies. I will clear the path for you. But they get this tiny little town of Ai. And, I mean, they just put them to shame. They just send a small army in there because they think that oh, this would be easy. It's a small city. But the problem is there was sin in the camp. Because if you remember, uh, when Achan was in the city of Jericho and all things were being committed for destruction, he saw some clothing and he saw some gold and he took it. 
In Joshua 7, therefore, the, in verses 12 to 13, therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed from among you. Up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee. O Israel, you, thou canst not stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. You see the comparison. Because he's going to offer praise, but he's, he's recognizing, God, I'm coming to you with a clean heart. There is truth and sincerity in my heart because I've made things right with you. He's not harboring sin. And we need to see the insidious nature of sin. Go back to Isaiah in heaven, seeing God in his throne. And, and here's a man, we assume, had, you know, is walking with God, right? And yet, what is his response in the presence of the holy God? I'm undone. I am cut off. There's no hope for me. But God says there is. And God makes him clean. Your sins are forgiven you. But have we dealt with the sin? So my wife and I spent uh, a week at the Wilds this, this last week uh, for the Youth Workers Conference. And it's about dealing with addiction, suffering. And it's just a reminder, suffering is a part of life. You will not escape suffering. You've all endured it, and you will continue to endure suffering until you're in the presence of God. Because that is the result of the fall of man. And each of us endure unique suffering. Something that is ordained for us. It's coming. If you're not suffering now, you will be. The question is, how are you going to face, how are you going to stand in that suffering? Are you ready for that suffering? In a sense, we can't fully be ready, right? I mean, we might not know what God is going to bring next. But where are we in relation to God right now? Are we prepared in that sense? Are we walking with God? The psalmist here points out his sincerity and how God honored that sincerity. God did hear his prayer and God gave deliverance. And it could be, maybe, the trial you're in right now, God might choose to just leave you there until you make things right. I don't know. I'm not God. But again, He loves you. He's more concerned about you than He is your circumstance. He's got all that in hand. But He wants to bring you to a better place. And we know, thankfully, according to the New Testament, that he is concerned about conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. That is his goal. And that, to me, is a better place than where we are right now. So he praises God for hearing his cry, for giving mercy, and for demonstrating loyal love to him. So, folks, there's, there's a lot to praise God for. 
you know, these are, these are things that we have read over and over again in Scripture. You have read to you from the pulpit. You have read in your personal devotions. You have heard read to you over and over again. We know these things. Don't let it become old hat because it involves you. All of this is the redemptive work of God to save you, to conform you to the image of Christ. So we have a lot to praise God for, right? We've seen His mighty works among the children of men throughout history, right? We can praise God for His redeeming work through Israel and specifically through Jesus Christ. It is true that all the world benefits from that work, and what is most poignant really is the fact that God demonstrates sovereign care for me as a person, as an individual. Don't ever exclude yourself from that. Satan will tell you God doesn't care. Man, he he died for you. Jesus died for you. So God the Father is interested in me. He demonstrates loyal, steadfast love to me through both testing and deliverance that He ordains for me. And because of that, He is worthy of all praise. If you and I want to worship God in sincerity, if we want to offer praise in sincerity, what we need to do is sit down and really consider His works. That will put us in that position that Isaiah was in to finally recognize, God, I'm, I'm not worthy even to speak. But I have a lot to say. You've made me clean, and because of that, I lift my praise to you. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you so much for Scripture. I thank you for the power of Scripture. Lord, it is powerful to save. Lord, it delivers us from sin's penalty and its power as well. And Lord, it gives us hope of the resurrection. And Lord, I thank you that you ordain circumstances throughout the world, but also in our individual lives, Lord, to conform us to the image of your Son. And I pray that today that would move us to worship and to praise, praise that is acceptable. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who is harboring sin, who refuses to give up that sin, I pray that you would move them to repentance. And I thank you that you are waiting with open arms to accept the repentance center. So Lord, help us to praise you in all that we do. And Lord, we... We desire that it be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.